hustlers, road players, tournament champions. Hear the stories, get their advice, learn about their lives. Our host, Joey Ryan, brings you an inside look at the professional pool player. You're listening to the Pool Player Podcast, brought to you by Pool Scene 365. Hey, welcome to the Pool Player Podcast brought to you by Pool Scene 365. I'm your host, Joey Ryan. If you're enjoying this content, do me a favor and hit the subscribe button, the like, uh, go ahead and share it, and do me a favor and put a comment on this video and let me know, hey, what are some things you wanna see, some things you want me to ask, maybe ways that I could do it better. I'd love to get your feedback and kind of uh, incorporate that into the show. This episode falls into our industry leader category and uh, today I'm talking with a really special guest. He's the current owner and CEO of Q Sports International. I'd like to welcome Ozzy Reynolds to the show. Hey, Ozzy, how's it going? Good, Joey. Thank you. So, Ozzy, what first got you interested in pool? When did you first start playing pool? Well, I, I remember being a very small child, and my grandmother uh, bought this you know, little, little tiny little toy pool table that you would get at like Kmart and uh that was a really exciting day for me I set it up and like literally I think it was three feet long max and it's one of these things that's got the little uh cardboard uh head <laughs> you know and it, it kind of bows in about 10 minutes not like one. A hole, and all the balls just roll to the center so it was totally worthless but it did spark an interest in the game and, and I love that thing. Um, eventually, I, I almost got big enough to play on a real pool table. Uh, and I remember my father taking me to an arcade. We didn't really have a pool hall where I grew up. Took me to an arcade that has a, had a seven-foot pool table. And I remember him pulling up one of those old plastic milk crates to the edge of the table. And I would stand on that so I could actually see over the rail and pretend like I was playing pool. That's the thing that that sparked the interest. Uh, just, I fell in love with the game, the beauty of the game. Uh, as I learned more about how you could spin the ball and 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 do all sorts of what I thought was fun stuff, um, it just became a, a very very deep passion of mine. And I, I've always just loved the game all the way from from when I was eight years old. I, I probably had some aspirations at some point about being a professional pool player. Um, but they died pretty quickly when, when I realized I, I simply would never have the time to dedicate to that. Uh, but uh, luckily, I've been able to at least try to make my mark in other ways. When did you decide you started, you originally started the Action Pool Tour, is that correct? That is correct. Yeah. So when did you decide to make that transition from being a pool player to actually, you know, starting your own tour? <laughs> Well, I guess that depends on your definition of pool player. Uh, <laughs> it's always just been something that I, I love. I love the game. Very passionate about it. Um, never really fancied myself as a, you know, a player, like I'm going to turn pro or anything. Um, but it, it's, it's an interesting story. So I used to play a lot. Like, I mean, a, a lot back in when I was uh, early 20s. And had a pretty strong game back then. I would say I'm maybe as good as you are now back then. Um, 
I, I think you're as good as I am right now, actually, from what I hear. <laughs> uh, but I made a conscious decision back then to go back to school. So I was working full time, made the decision to go back to college at night. So pool took a back seat for quite a while. Long story short, early 2011, I was getting very, very close to finishing my college education. And there was a regional pool tour not too far from me. And I said to myself one weekend, you know, I'm going to get back into the swing of things and start playing a little more again. And I remember driving about four hours to the tournament uh, and I was super excited. I played on this tour uh, years earlier and it was just an incredible uh, competitive tour, but I hadn't played on that tour in years. So I, I drove about four hours, went to this tournament and was just totally and utterly disappointed hmm. at what it, what it had become. And I remember uh, I did not do well, um, and I was driving home. And during that long four-hour drive home, you know, I started thinking about what it was, and what it what it had become, and what I thought a regional tour should be. And I decided, rather than complain to myself, I just do something about it. So. Uh, literally the next day I started working on what would become the action pool tour. Yeah, it's an interesting story. And, you know, I think a lot of pool players were really good at complaining. And I actually have maybe a question or two about that <laughs> at some point. Um, but to take the initiative and do something about it is a different story, right? So many people will tell you what's wrong with an event, you know, but to get up and actually you know, decide to make a difference like you did. That was, that was pretty cool. And, you know, you, I, I noticed in your background, I think you have an MBA. Is that right? Uh, correct. Yeah. So, you know, did that, you know, part of your business training, did that kind of get you started or, or kind of help set you up maybe to be successful with the action pull tour? Well, you know, yeah, I would say anytime you get education in anything, it's going to help you. Right. So if you have a, a business acumen, uh, that's going to help you in pretty much everything you do, e even interpersonal relationships. Uh, so, yeah. Um, but, but really, you know, I had a lot of fun just brainstorming that thing, putting it together, trial and error. I'm sure you might have done something similar with this podcast. Um, yeah, I had to learn how to do websites. I had to learn how to do live streaming. I had to learn how to do lots of things that I had zero experience in. It was a lot of work, but it was a lot of fun. Kind of became my little baby project. And uh, I'm very proud of what the tour did. I mean, it, it sort of took off very quickly uh, and became the dominant regional tour in the mid-Atlantic region. I was very, very sad to, to kind of let that go, but um, you know, doors open and you walk through them. Yeah, I'm kind of disappointed that you didn't start that sooner because <laughs> I had lived in that area for a while. And it's like, as soon as I moved away, all of a sudden the action pool tour was there. And I was like, where was this? You know, yeah, you, shouldn't, you shouldn't have moved away. Yeah, I guess not. <laughs> so you, you mentioned doors opening and you walking through them. I assume you're talking about the transition to CSI. Can you take us through that? Like, how did that uh, develop and, and uh, you know, take us back to those days? So that was, that was very interesting. You know, you never know what's around the corner. And that's, that's what I tell my kids all the time. I would tell anyone. 
you just never know. Uh, sometimes impatience gets the best of us. But literally how that happened was uh, I was dry. It, it kind of started very early on in the action pool tour. I was probably the first year that I was running that thing. I was driving home one night from a tournament and my cell phone rang and it was an unknown number from Las Vegas. And I thought, this is odd. And I answered the phone and it was Mark Griffin. Hmm. And he introduced himself. He says, hi, this is Mark Griffin, Q Sports International. Uh, I like what you're doing with the tour. And, you know, he wanted to get involved in some sort of, you know, very small sponsorship uh, sort of deal. So that sort of formed the relationship between Mark and I. And uh, we kept in touch, um, not very frequently, but we kept in touch for the most part. And I guess uh, two or three years later, he called me one day and said, hey, if you're ever in Las Vegas, come on by and speak to me. Uh, we'd like to, to bounce something off of you. So I immediately thought, well, okay, CSI probably wants to do an event on the East Coast, and maybe they want my help in some sort of way. Um, so I flew out here a short time later, came to the office, and I could tell within 10 minutes it was a, it was a job interview. Oh, really? And at the time, Mark Griffin, um, he had failing lungs. He had a very reduced capacity in both lungs, and... Hmm. He expected he was going to be dying in the not too distant future. So he was looking for his replacement. Um, so that's, that's how that came to be. Mark Griffin called me and the rest is history. And uh, thank goodness uh, he did get a double lung transplant and he's hopefully got many, many more years in front of him. Yeah. I, I always find it interesting how people end up where they are, you know, and I even look back at my professional career and, you know, even doing this podcast, you know, there's just relationships that you build along the way. And if you treat people the right way, it seems like things tend to work out, you know, and, and sometimes you can't even explain how things happen, you know, and it sounds like, you know, Mark reached out to you, you guys started building a relationship, and then ultimately it changed the trajectory of your whole career and, you know, what you were choosing to do. Because before, like the action pull tour was kind of something you were doing on the side, right? Weren't you like an IT you know, project manager or something, or, or maybe not. Yeah. I was a project manager at okay. NASA Langley research center at the time. Okay. And he actually, yeah, the action pool tour was just a, a side thing I did for fun really. Yeah. So, you know, I'm going to switch gears a little bit. I'm always surprised. Like when you look at, you know, a pool tournament and the rules and, you know, it just seems like there's always weird stuff that can happen at a pool tournament that you would never expect. And so you've been tournament director, I'm sure many, many times. And I'm just wondering what's like the strangest scenario that ever came up at a pool tournament. Can you think of an example? Mm, strange scenario. Well, uh, <laughs> the largest event, on earth getting shut down because of COVID-19. That's probably the strangest thing that's ever happened. Yeah. Uh, that was, that was wild to put it mildly. Yeah. Um, if you're talking about more on the, uh, you know, lighter end of the spectrum, you know, it's Joey, it's like anything. I mean, you've, you've people get rowdy sometimes and you got to kick them out. Uh, you get, 
some very strange complaints sometime that, you know, I guess, I guess everyone's different. Some of the complaints I've heard is just, uh, you know, you shake your head and you wonder where that came from. I remember on the action pool tour once <laughs> a very well-known player came up to me. Keep in mind, this is a, a labor of love that I was doing on the side. Right. And th these things don't make money. I mean, you do it because you love to do it. And this well-known player who had won, you know, six of the last eight tournaments in a row, he finally lost a match and got put on the one loss side. And he came up to me and says, you know, Ozzy, that ball skidded. That last ball skidded caused me to lose that game. You should buy brand new Aramith sets of balls. <laughs> All your tournaments. It, yeah. So I'm going to carry about 20 sets of balls around to every tournament. Jeez. So, yeah. That may not be, that may not seem very strange to some people, but at the time, um, I could have done without that comment. Yeah. Well, you know, you kind of alluded to that. And with that example, um, how do you deal with the criticism that you face? Because, you know, you, there's no way, you know, having the largest pool tournament in the world, there's no way that you can please everybody. And, you know, you'll notice after the event, like I, I was thoroughly impressed. I, for years, I never, you know, participate, participated in the BCA events and, you know, for when I moved to Denver, somebody asked me to join a team. I joined a team. I went out there to play. And I, I don't know. I just had this expectation in my mind it would be like any other pool tournament. And the matches were scheduled. There was an online bracket. You know, everything worked like clockwork. And I was like, this is the best tournament I've ever played in. You know, it just everything was smooth and everything was great. And then you're at the coffee shop or you're in the casino and you're talking to somebody and they're like, yeah, this tournament sucks. I, this happened. That happened. And I'm like, I don't, I don't get it. How could two people have such an opposite experience at an event? And it kind of made me realize that, you know, as pool players, we like to complain a lot. How do you deal with, you know, the, the complaints and, you know, the mental toll it must take on you? I'll be honest. It was, it was hard at first when I, when I took this job back in 2014, um, it, it was, it was a hard transition, uh, to listen to just the, the volume <laughs> and sometimes sheer hatred of complaints that we get over lots of a range of different things. But, you know, I've learned, I've learned over time that a, it's not personal. Uh, I don't think any of these people, you know, stalk me out on a personal basis or, or any of my staff for that matter uh, to complain about something. It's just, it just kind of comes with the territory, Joey. Um, anytime, regard, whether it's pool or any other business, I think if you service as many customers as we service, if you touch as many of your customers as we touch, everybody's not going to be happy all of the time. And as pool players, I think a lot of us are very, very passionate about the game. And certainly it's a big commitment to fly out to Las Vegas, for example, uh, and get a hotel room and airline tickets and stay there for five or six days. You want to do well. And when things don't go so well, when you've made that sort of commitment, it's easy to get emotional about things. So I've learned to not take it personal. Um, I've gotten very good at 
listening to it, uh, determining if there's any usable information mm. in that complaint or, you know, constructive criticism. If there is, wonderful. We kind of stock it into our stash of ideas and knowledge. Um, if there's nothing really usable there, I've gotten pretty good at just shrugging it off and moving forward. So Ozzy, you mentioned your event getting shut down uh, because of COVID. And I can't even like imagine what went on there, what that was all about, what you dealt with. Can you take the listeners through like what that was like? That was an insane experience. Um, could, could you imagine that something would happen to close every casino in Las Vegas? No. I mean, it's an, it's an, un, it's an unfathomable uh, possibility. It's interesting. You know, you talked about criticism. We got highly criticized in the very short lead up to that event. Uh, and, you know, and I, I guess what people sometimes don't realize is these things are planned years in advance. And at a high level anyway, and, and even the fine details are planned months in advance. For example, we've pretty much got 2021 planned already. Um, so, and these are huge contracts, right? It's not like you're, you know, going to your brother-in-law's barbecue and you can pull out at the last minute. These things have real, these contracts are lengthy. They have lots of clauses. They have lots of roles and responsibilities on both sides of the fence. Nobody wants to cancel one of these things. So in the lead up to the event, obviously the world knew that COVID-19 was out there. Nobody, including the health experts, knew just how serious it was at the time. So, you know, we had to move forward with our event and we were really hoping that it was like some of the previous uh, health scares that we've had in the past. It's something to watch, it's something to take seriously, but it's not gonna end the world. So we moved forward with the event. We, ha we had daily meetings with Caesars. Caesars obviously is in constant communication with the health officials in Nevada. Everything's a go. We're good to go, no problem. We're gonna take some extra measures to make sure things stay sanitary and people stay safe, but we're absolutely having the event. Everybody that, there were some people that did not show up at the event because they were concerned and that's fine. I, we totally understand that. The people that did show up were having a fantastic time. It started off really well. Like we were, we look at lots of data and statistics when this event starts every year. You know, from the moment it starts, literally every few hours we're looking at data to see how we're doing on, on an, in a number of areas where we need to do better and you know just to keep this this train on the tracks we were blowing away everything like we were just the move to march the enhanced experience that we set up at the event it was beautiful people were having a great time we were crushing every number every metric we have for the event and then things started to deteriorate and it really started with president trump's announcement that uh, travel from Europe was was going to be banned within like two days. Well, we had some European players there that raised a lot of eyebrows. 
And then it was like, okay, this is getting serious, but we just need to get through a few more days and we'll have this thing over with. Uh, and then Governor Sisolak, the governor of Nevada, he comes out and he's starting to give almost daily press conferences about how bad this might turn out to be in Nevada. So now basically what, what is normally our marketing room, we have an office set up for our marketing people. We turned it into a war room. <laughs> it literally was a war room yes. where we would gather around for every press conference and we're glued to the television to see what announcement is coming next. What's going on in the world? Are we going to get through this? Are we not? We, so that this war room had CSI people and predator people and Caesars people. And I really wish I had a photo of some of the gatherings we had in there because it's actually very eerie to see all of these people and, you know, some in suits, some in just blue collar workman's gear and, but everybody's trying to figure out what's happening around us because everything looks fine at the Rio, but apparently the world's falling apart. Yeah. Um, but still we met literally like on an hourly basis. How's it looking now? How's it looking now? Because if you cancel, you can't just say, all right, we're going to shut down tonight. You got to give people enough notice so that others who are planning to travel don't waste their time. So you really need to know what you're doing at least a few days out. Well, Eventually, Governor Sisolak said, you know, everything needs to shut down by, you know, whatever day. It's like Wednesday, I think, or Tuesday night. So we, we had to make the decision right there to cancel the Predator World 10 ball, which was the next pro event on the slate, and the team portion of our BCA Pro League World Championships, which is absolutely the biggest part of the event. Yeah. We had to make the decision. Um, and we did it, but it, it was very eerie. Um, we had to get out of there very quickly because they were literally boarding up the Rio as we were getting the last of the pool tables out. In fact, we had to get out so quickly that some of our banners and, and signs are still hanging in the Rio Convention Center right now. Wow. Well, now, now that it's been that long, I'm hopeful that they just continue to stay there until March and we don't have to rehang them. I, I was going to say, <laughs> that'll save you some setup time. <laughs> it would, I, got, I have to tell you, Joey, it was the most eerie feeling in the world to walk out of my hotel room through an empty casino, down that long hallway, through the convention center, and they're literally nailing up uh, plywood on the windows and doors. And they're basically saying, you know, it's been nice, but get out. Jeez. And then okay. to drive home and you're just wondering what just happened. Yeah. It, it was, uh, it was crazy, but it was, um, it, you know, I could get in, I could probably talk about it for three or four hours, but um, Karim Belhaj, the uh, owner of Predator, I, I, he, he's a good guy. He's a very smart guy and uh, I'm pretty proud of what he said. He patted me on the shoulder the night before we shut it down. And he says, well, he says, I know this was tough. He said, but I just want to tell you, I think this was a case study on effective crisis management. So that made me feel better about a otherwise horrible situation. At least the people that really know what was going on looked and said that, you know, we handled it as best as we possibly could have. Yeah. 
Well, let's hope that's a one-time thing and you never have to deal with anything like that. <laughs> they say once in a hundred years, so I'll be pretty old when the next one rolls around. Yeah, me too. <laughs> you know, talk to us about um, maybe, you know, obviously it's taken its toll on everyone, um, but talk to us about maybe how you're planning to rebound from this and maybe some of the things that you have planned moving forward. Hmm. Well, um, anybody in pool, I think, well, not anybody, but most, most companies involved in pool, this has been one tough year. And when the core of your business is pool leagues, like it is for us, it makes it an incredibly tough year. Um, leagues have been, most leagues anyway, have been shut down for months and months and months. And some of our larger leagues are still not back. Um, you know, there are some states that are still utterly and totally locked down. So it's very tough. We are very fortunate that we had a really strong 2019. So we came into this thing, none of us knew what was about to happen, but we came into it in a pretty strong position. Um, that has allowed us to weather the storm. We will be okay. Uh, but I'd be lying to say that it hasn't been pretty painful. Uh, when, when, when you're in business and you get hit with something that essentially stops your revenue for eight months, that's a difficult thing to overcome. And you have to make some, some pretty creative and tough decisions when that happens. But fortunately, we had a good 2019. We made some very creative decisions. Um, we've done some things to sort of float by until this thing passes. And I think we'll come out of it okay. Um, I'd be lying if I said, yeah, everything's going to be perfect in two months. It's not. Um, but CSI will be okay. We'll get through it. And uh, we've got some really, really big, pl big plans for 2021. We're partnering very, very closely with Predator. They have been, an, uh, I'll give them a plug right now. They have been an unbelievable partner for us uh, in everything that we do. And we're working very, very closely together on establishing a series of pro events, hopefully for 2021, uh, both U.S. and worldwide. And we're also working on some other uh, online initiatives. Wow. I wish you could say more. <laughs> That's pretty exciting, <laughs> especially the pro events. Well, I don't, I don't, I don't want to give away too much before we, we've even finalize the details, but uh, I will say that Predator deeply, deeply cares about the sport, and so does CSI, and that's why we've sort of formed this natural bond and relationship, because it's not about, for, for us, for both of our companies, it's not about, you know, protecting your piece of the pie or just making a few extra bucks. We both deeply care about the sport. We want to grow it. I think we share a common vision of how that should be done. And uh, we've got some big things planned. Yeah, that's awesome to hear. I'm really excited to find out what that's going to be and what it's going to look like. You know, part of the reason I'm doing this podcast is because for years, you know, I, I'm kind of older. I'm 48 now. And I grew up watching pool and television you know, and it was just a thing. And, you know, my dad and I would sit there and watch it. Then we go into the basement and hit balls, you know? And so 
you know, seeing kind of what it's been like the last couple decades, really, you know, and the fact that there hasn't been a lot of professional pool, you know, I said, well, you know, I can sit here and continue to complain about it, or I can try to do something. And, you know, it's a little podcast right now, but I'm hoping it grows into something big. And, you know, I'm trying to highlight players. I'm trying to highlight industry, industry leaders like yourself to really get people watching and interested and wanting to know more about pool, you know, so the game can grow. And so um, I ask every single guest that I have on ideas for growing the professional game, you know, in the United States. And, you know, I've had at least, I'd say three guests so far that have mentioned something about the pool leagues and maybe the role that they could play you know, and it always, and I'm sure you've heard this before, but it always comes, of going. Yeah, it always comes back to, you know, the, the league player, they pay their $12, you know, or $14 or whatever it is. And what if they could pay $13 or $15 and a dollar could go into funding, you know, a professional pool tour or something like that, because, you know, there's tons of league players out there. And, you know, what do you, what do you think about that notion? Could you, you know, if it's not possible, could you explain why it's not possible or some of the challenges with that? So anything's possible. Um, you're right. I mean, that's the, uh, that's the age old common answer to how do we inject more money into the professional game? And, and it's an easy thing to say, right? Oh, there's a, a half a million league members between all the organizations have all of them kick in a dollar each per year and we've got plenty of funding. But, but here's what people need to realize, pros included. What are they paying for? Even if it's a dollar, what are they paying for? Uh, anyone who spends any of their hard earned money wants value for that money. So. If, if any of the league organizations go to their members and say, hey, we want you to pay an extra dollar per year and we're going to just kick it into this pro fund uh, and have the pros play for it. Well, what have you offered those people for that? I mean, the ability to watch them play pool simply is not enough right now, at least. So just robbing, you know, robbing, the amateur game to fund the pro game, I don't think is the right answer. Now, I do agree that the amateur players are the professional players fan base. That's where this, you know, I've always said, we, 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 we have to understand the difference between participation and spectatorship. Right now, what I think we have is laziness on all sides. So, for example, Joey, have you noticed, uh, I, I'm going to talk about both, so I don't want to seem like I'm banging on the pros here, but have you noticed pros helping to promote the game or uh, events that they're going to next month? What do they do to bring more value to the event? What do they do to increase their fan base? Are they active on social media? Are they actively trying to get more people interested in watching them play? Are they actively trying to help the promoter of whatever event it is get more people in the building or get more people to watch online? Do they share live stream links? 
these are all very simple things that the players could help grow their fan base. Because, you know, I've heard this thing before where uh, someone will say, you know, it's a real shame that the best pool player in the world can't afford to buy a house. But LeBron James makes, you know, X million dollars a year. Well, I mean, my counter to that would be, I agree, it's a shame, but LeBron James is putting lots of people in the seats. He's putting butts in the seats, people that are willing to pay good money to watch him play. That's what pool needs in order to go to the next level, because right now it's just a participation sport. Pros primarily make their money either off of money matches or going to tournaments where they have lots of dead money. Right. Lots of people that are willing to pay just a little bit to play in a tournament. The real funding is when we turn it into a spectator sport. And all of us are falling short of that right now. Players, promoters, amateurs. I hear from the amateurs all the time, you know, don't give my money to the pros. If you even suggest <laughs> that you're going to take some of their league fees, and just give it to a, a pro tournament or fund a pro tournament, uh, big backlash. So we've got to bring all these factions together, but there needs to be some synergy. They have to help one another. The pros need to help bring the amateurs along. The amateurs need to look up to the pros. And right now we don't have that. It's more of an us and them mentality. Yeah. And, you know, I think one of the things that you said that I think is really intriguing is turning it into a spectator sport, right? Because I love pool and I watched the Shane Van Boning, Dennis Circolo match, you know, that just occurred. What a, you know, what a match that was. And when Hill Hill raced to 120, how does that even happen? You know, um, but I bought the stream and, you know, I maybe watched like 30 games, you know, out of 239 games, you know, and, and I love pool, you know, and, I almost think that in some ways, you know, the rules that we have for that, that pretty much the professionals demand, right? They want tight tables. They want, you know, long races, you know, they want all these things that in some ways are making it a less palatable product for the average person to want to watch. I mean, look at your event out in Vegas, uh, you know, the, the biggest pool tournament in the world. And you had a pro event running simultaneously where you could just pull up a chair and watch and not pay a dime. And I'm sitting there and I watched several matches and I'm sitting there looking around like, why are more people not watching these matches? You know, these are the best players in the world, players from Asia and Europe and all over the place. I'm watching two guys from Poland. I don't even know who they are. And they're both like just jam up players. And I'm sitting there by myself, you know, kind of watching these events. So, you know, I, I think you're right there. I think there needs to be something maybe on the production end or somebody needs to break the news to some people like, Hey, guess what? You might love a tournament. That's a race to 15 on, you know, a tight nine foot table, but fans are not going to like that. You know, they're not going to want to sit there for two and a half hours, you know? Yeah. And, and you know, Joey, I think it goes back to what I said earlier about, participation versus spectatorship. So what we have today is a purely participation based sport. And I can't blame the pros for what I'm getting ready to, to say, but 
the pros, I believe, are the better players have pushed the game in the direction of being less friendly for spectators. Hmm. Uh, it's too quiet. If you make a peep, you know, the player will get aggravated and say that he or she was sharp. Um, it's too slow. Uh, you know, shot clock helps, but it's still too slow. It, you know, anytime uh, you have one match that takes two hours, for example, that's too slow. That's, that's just far too slow. And this, I could not have worse timing for bringing this point up, given what happened yesterday between Shane and Dennis, but a race to 100 or a race to 120 is, you know, not going to get us there. Yes, epic ending. Um, it was incredible. Out of all those games, I watched three racks, mm. the ending, because that's the exciting part. I'm sure you don't remember what happened in rack number 73, nor do I. Uh, probably no one does, except maybe Shane or Dennis. But nobody's nobody can sit there. I mean, there's very few people that can sit there and watch all of that three or four solid days of a single race. Um, poor promotion, you know, I, and we're all guilty of it. Uh, CSI is not excluded from this, but, uh, you know, I've seen flyers developed in word, missing information, spelling errors. <laughs> you have a whole uh, flyer out there. It doesn't tell you the date. I mean, we're just, we're not doing a good job of presenting the game, but you mentioned tight pockets. Do you remember tar? the yeah. action report. Yeah. So I, I was never involved in that, but um, Mark Griffin and uh, Justin Collette were partners in that. And I remember them telling me a story where the players started demanding this same old things, right? We want tighter pockets, you know, let's go four and a quarter, four and an eighth inch pockets. And they did that. They put super, super tight pockets pockets on on the tar table and they were streaming these matches once a month it got to a point where the best players in the world were missing lots of shots that to the person looking at home looked easy mm -hmm. but more importantly they weren't going for anything it was just duck duck goose i mean the whole three-day match and viewership was plummeting like their numbers were going off of a cliff because of it they immediately switched the rails and the pockets back out to standard and things kind of came back to where, you know, where they were prior to going to the tight pockets. And it's just not spectator friendly. It makes what, let's be honest, unless you're a pool nut and you really know the subtle nuances of the game, trying to watch pool on standard pockets is slow and boring. You make it even slower and even more boring it's just unwatchable to the masses. Yeah. So I agree. Uh, we have to find ways to speed the game up, make it more exciting, uh, build the characters. We've got some real characters in the game and we ignore it. I mean, we just put their faces on a flyer and, you know, count on everyone to know who these people are and what their story is, but they don't. Yeah. So about the characters, you know, I've said that for a long time, you know, and, and I think one of the analogies that people use is looking at poker and pool, right? And poker has been so successful. And, 
you know, you brought up a couple of things. You talked about the characters. Well, that's one thing poker does really well, right? They have the feature table and then they go out to a side table and they talk about this guy and he's got, oh yeah, this guy, he's a you know basketball player and he also plays poker or whatever. So they do a really good job of, of featuring different things during the course of the tournament, right? And then um, the other thing is, you know, when you talk about making it a spectator sport, you know, I, I was thinking the other day, wouldn't it be a great idea if we had this tournament where, you know, maybe we could try to get like 500 people in this tournament and we did like a race to three, you know, <laughs> like a race to three tournament and pros could enter and amateurs. Cause if you think about it from the, the poker realm, when did poker really get popular? It's when Chris Moneymaker won you know, the world series of poker and he wasn't a professional poker player. Right. So suppose like a guy like you or me who can make some balls and, and do some stuff gets into a race to three tournament, knocks off Alex, knocks off Shane, knocks off somebody else and, and boom, you know, a, a, an average person or maybe a, a little bit above average pool player now has had an incredible amount of success. But then when I was thinking about that, I was like, well, the pros won't show up, <laughs> you know, cause why would they want to play a race to three and risk losing to someone like me? You know, so yeah, you stole you stole the words right out of my mouth. Um, it reminds me of a few years ago when, boy, we caught all kinds of heat about for this, but we we uh, transitioned the U.S. Open eight ball and ten ball to seven foot tables. And we did that for two years, two years I believe. The first year we did so we did that for very strategic reasons. So we have a a fairly large YouTube channel. It's one of the largest pool channels on YouTube, I believe. And we started noticing a very, very clear trend. Eight ball and seven foot pool tables dominated everything. If you looked at the top, you know, 10 videos in any snapshot of time, it was eight ball, seven foot tables, eight ball, seven foot tables, eight ball, seven foot tables, Efren, eight ball, seven foot tables, eight it was just clear what people wanted to watch. So we, we had done the U.S. Open 10-ball and 8-ball and 9-foot tables in the past. I don't remember what year this was, 2016 maybe. We transitioned those to 7-foot tables. And we thought at our league event, it was going to garner a lot more interest from our league players. The spectatorship would grow in person as well as online. Um, so we did that the field that first year was smaller because the pros didn't want to play on seven foot tables, but the viewership on YouTube exploded. The number of people in the stands, although we're not, we weren't counting them because it's free. Uh, it just seemed like it was packed all of the time. So from that standpoint, we really felt like it worked. Like we were giving our audience and our spectators what they wanted to see. The problem was the pros did nothing but complain about it. And I can't blame them. They're trying to make a living by winning a tournament. They're not getting a direct immediate benefit from more people watching. So they want conditions that give them greater chances of winning, which would be nine foot table, tight pockets, be quiet, long races. So we've got this constant struggle between what the pros need in order to make a living on a participation level, but we're trying to grow the sport from a spectator and viewership aspect. And those things don't immediately pay off. 
So we're sort of caught in this tug of war struggle at the moment. Uh, and I'd really like to find a way to overcome that. Yeah. And not to knock the pros in any way, but it's almost like they're a little short-sighted, right? Um, they're concerned about how they're going to do in a particular event and not really thinking about the big picture, right? And what this could mean if Poole gathered this huge following. And yeah, you, you know, you might, for a couple of years, you might lose to some people you're not supposed to lose to because the conditions aren't, you know, in your favor, you know, totally in your favor where you can really showcase how much better a player you are. But in the long run, now you're gonna have much more opportunity. And, you know, it's, it's so funny. The first person I interviewed uh, for this podcast is a good friend of mine, Mike Davis. And, you know, I had this idea one time and I was traveling a lot for my day job and I, on an airplane, I sketched out this entire like hierarchy tournament system, you know, like you get these different tiers and eventually there's the pro tier and they're going to make tons of money. And, you know, all I needed was for people to trust me, you know, and I remember it was so humbling because I sit down there with Mike and I lay it all out in his kitchen. And I said, look, Mike, this is going to work. All players have to do is just trust that it's going to work. He's like, it'll never work. <laughs> and I said, well, what do you mean? And he said, well, they've been burned too many times. You know, they're not very trusting. And, you know, I think he never really said this explicitly, but I think the truth is that a lot of times they don't see the big picture, right? They don't see it kind of coming together that it's going to help them down the road. I think that's right. Um, let me be clear, though. I, I don't really blame them. Um, it's easy for me to sit here and say, look, you know, professional pool player, trust us, do these things that aren't necessarily going to benefit you for a few years. And we're going to grow this thing. And, you know, we promise we're going to put more money in your, into the game and you're going to benefit. That's a hard sell. I understand that. And I don't really blame them for being skeptical. And I don't blame them for caring about the here and now. And let's face it, most of these guys are not rich. So, I get it. And, and, and I'm not blaming them. I'm not saying it's all their fault. It absolutely isn't. Um, but I will say, and I don't think it's just pool players. I think just society, everyone in society in general needs immediate satisfaction and instant gratification. So putting that off until tomorrow is not a very sexy idea. Um, so I'll give you an example. So I put together an event. This may be similar to what you were thinking of, Joey. I'm not sure. But when I was living in Virginia running the Ash and Pool Tour, I had an idea for an event called the East Coast Nine Ball Championship. 64 player event, 64 qualifiers. The idea was that these qualifiers would be held in local rooms all over the Mid-Atlantic, very small qualifiers, and very cheap. I uh, don't remember the exact numbers off the top of my head, but it was basically it was like $25 entry fee. And I modeled this thing out and determined that, again, I'm going off of fuzzy memory here. So, you know, fact check me if you want to. But based on the very low entry fee, I calculated if we got just 16 people per qualifier, then we could have, uh, I forget, $10,000, $20,000 prize fund for a 64-player tournament pretty good. Yeah. It's a pretty good prize fund, but the qualifiers didn't have payouts. The winner got into the tournament and that was it, but it was really, really cheap. And these were quick one day tournaments. 
I thought, surely, <laughs> surely we could get 16 players per qualifier. Well, held the first one, got like 27. I'm like, oh, yeah, this thing is going to really work. Second one got low 20s. Third one, I mean, we were rocking and rolling. Then come the fourth, fifth qualifier, it starts coming down. 18, 16, 12, 8, 5. And I kept getting the same, you know, people were sending me messages. No, I'm not going because there's no payouts. So literally, these people had to have payouts to show up. If even if it was going to, even if they were going to win $50, they would have, they would rather win $50 right now than a chance at say 10,000, Yeah, you know, a couple months down the road. And I didn't get it then. I don't get it now. Uh, maybe I'm just not wired that way, but that was the reality. And I held the event. The prize fund was far smaller than I ever imagined. Um, but it was decent, but I, that was a lot of work to do 64 qualifiers. And given that the interest wasn't there because there wasn't that instant gratification, I did not repeat that tournament. Yeah. My idea was similar and it, it did involve a little payout at the time. Cause I kind of anticipated that problem. Um, you know, so, but like, I don't know if you were supposed to get $400 for winning the tournament, you'd get $100, right. And $300 would fuel that final tournament. And I thought it was a home run and Mike talked me out of it. <laughs> so I didn't even call him when I was going to do a podcast. I was like, I'm not telling this guy, I'll just call him when it's ready and he can be my yeah. first interview. <laughs> so, there you go. Yeah. Uh, let me shift gears a little bit and ask you about your relationship with Fargo rate. I remember, you know, when I first heard about Fargo rate, I have a background in analytics and, you know, um, I was a crime analyst for 15 years. And so I love, you know, using data and analysis, you know, in a lot of areas of my life, I keep spreadsheets for stuff that normal people don't. Right. And so I remember, you know, with all of the different handicapping systems that there were throughout the country, I thought, hey, this could be huge, you know, if if this really works and, you know, people buy into this, this could be a real game changer in terms of like getting an accurate kind of, you know, clocking someone, you know, and using that to then, you know, handicap events or, you know, whatever it is. And so take us through how that relationship developed and, you know, where it is today. Good question. Um, <laughs> so part, part of my job um, today, but e even when I was first hired uh, to come to CSI as the general manager, everybody has the next best idea. So from the day I started, you know, to, to today, I routinely get emails, messages, hard letters in the mail. Um, people pull me aside when I'm, you know, just at the pool room and they want to pitch their, you know, great idea that's going to save pool. And I, I listen, I try to listen with an open mind, but let's face it, 99% of it is just, you know, not good. Recycled ideas that have failed in the past. So I've, I've, I've probably grown a little cynical about this kind of stuff when, when someone tells me they got a, got a great idea you go into it very skeptical. 
So I remember one day, it's 2014, I think, 2014 or 2015, uh, Mark Griffin, who was the owner at that point, said, hey, we have a conference call at, you know, whatever, one o'clock, and it's with these guys that have created a rating system. They're calling it Fargo Rate. I, they want to present some present to us what they have. So we're going to do this, uh, you know, this uh, it wasn't Zoom back then, but it was some kind of screen sharing call. So I'm automatically thinking well, it's going to be a waste of an hour when I could be doing something productive. So the, the call started. I was very skeptical, had no expectations, just thought it would be a waste of time. And I sat back and started listening to Mike Page and his partner, Steve, explain what they had created, presented data, uh, presented some, some anecdotal examples, but then presented some real statistical analysis of what they had. Now, we had provided them with tons of data. We had been keeping scores in our tournaments for years, unlike a lot of tournaments who just mark when and losers, we had actually been keeping the scores. We didn't know why we were doing that at the time, but it paid off because that data was turned over to Fargate for them to test what they thought they had created. Long story short, they went through their presentation and me being one of the most skeptical people ever, I was blown away. I was blown away by what they had and they were pretty clever. They used me as one of their anecdotal examples. <laughs> Now, at the time, they only had, I, if I remember right, 27 games of data on me. It was from one tournament that I played in Arizona, and I remember playing awful. At least I thought I played awful. Like, it was a miserable tournament. I didn't do very well. And with that 27 games of data, they cranked out a number for me. And I think the number back then was like, you know, 668 or something like that. Well, I didn't know what that meant. I didn't know what a 668 was. You know, I didn't know what the scale was. So when they presented that data and my number, then they presented a player who they had a lot of data on in Virginia who I knew very, very well. Like this is a guy that I've matched up with on occasion, played in tournaments against. And I thought he and I were very, very close to the same speed. So when they brought him up, I was obviously interested. What's his number? His number was like three points different than mine. Wow. And I could not believe that they took 27 games of data. I think it was three matches total that I played and pegged me that accurately on a tournament that I thought I did very poorly in. So I was blown away. And then, you know, I started looking – deeper into the algorithm and the data they had and the numbers they had on people and a lot that, you know back then I had my bigger frame of ref reference was pool players from Virginia and Maryland I started pouring through the numbers they had on these people and I was just blown away I knew that this was going to be the future of pool player ratings uh, and Mark Griffin agreed so Fargo Rate is its own company. Some people think CSI owns it. We do not. Fargo Rate is its own company. They do wonderful things for the game, uh, but they had to get going like many companies do. And getting going requires funding and support. 
And that's what we offered. We invested very, very heavily in Fargo rate to help them get off the ground because we thought it was going to be, you know, the thing, the universal thing that could maybe help unite some of these things in pool. I mean, who couldn't get behind a performance-based, non-biased pool player rating system? Everybody can benefit from that, even our competitors. So we invested very heavily. We helped them get off the ground, and we've continued to do so since day one. We have a very, very strong relationship with those guys. And we're, we're very proud to say we were the first one on the Fargo rate boat. We transitioned everything that we do to Fargo rate very quickly. You talk in the very beginning about criticism. Holy cow. <laughs> Boy, do we get criticized. We were dis- we were single-handedly destroying pool when we switched to Fargo rate. Uh, but I think, you know, over the last few years, we've been proven right. But we're very proud of that. Yeah. So, you know, I remember when I first learned about it, I was like, wow, this is, this is pretty interesting. And it seemed like that you guys made that transition pretty quickly, you know, to get that involved in your, your, uh, your tournaments. And, um, you know, I think the biggest criticism you hear about it is, you know, where that unestablished established point is. Right. And so, and who do you let in? Do you let in the unestablished and, you know, it's got to be tough for an entity like yourself to turn people away. And I know you've come up with alternative events, you know, to kind of handle that issue, you know, that that's kind of popped up. But, you know, when you tell that story about Fargo rate and them giving you the pitch, I just like in my mind, I just kind of see Mark sitting there and kind of telling them ahead of time, hey, look, Ozzy, you know, he's not like he's tough to play. You know, <laughs> he hears these pitches all the time. Yeah. So why don't you work up a Fargo rate on him and, you know, almost like he he set the whole thing up. I don't know. It's, just no, funny. I, it, it's funny. You know, Mark is just as skeptical as I am, maybe more so. Oh, yeah. um, but I, I give Mark all the credit in the world. Mark is not afraid to invest in things he thinks will be good for pool. And at that point in time, that was his money being invested, not Ozzy Reynolds. So he deserves all of the credit, really, uh, for helping Fargo Ray get off the ground. And I'm just proud to continue what, what he started and to continue to help Fargo Ray grow. How do you it think? Really is, it's the universal rating system, uh, regardless of what anybody else will say. Everything right now is being compared to Fargo Ray. It is the yardstick. Yeah. And the criticism about Fargo rate to me uh, is kind of ridiculous because it's almost like in areas where it's not being used, it's not accurate. Well, that's called data and analysis, right? (laughs) You know, it's, if you have less data, then it's less, you know, accurate. And so, um, you know, why not just do what we've done in Arizona, which is, you know, everybody, you know, it's every tournament director uses it. All games get entered. I mean, it's pretty, pretty remarkable how it's been utilized here. And, you know, I was out in Maryland last weekend and played in the pool tournament with my brother and, you know, a couple conversations came up and people were like, ah, that Fargo rate, that thing's, it's not right. And I'm like, well, you know, it's funny because if you come to Arizona, it's got everybody clocked. I mean, it is really hard to find somebody in Arizona that's 10 points off high or low, you know, and I do that. I look at people and I look at the ratings and it, I mean, it's very accurate when you have, you know, the data in there to support it. So um, that's right. I would like to say one thing that you touched on because it is probably the biggest misconception uh, that we get about Fargo rate. And that's this idea of uh, 
you know, unestablished players and you, you should require a certain amount of games to let people in the tournament. It, it's not about CSI not, not wanting to turn people away. Uh, we don't, obviously, but that's not really the issue. The issue people have to realize is, statistically speaking, 200 games is what Fargo rate has determined is the threshold for someone to have a, you know, very accurate rating. And prior to that, you're really getting, look, in my experience, you get a hundred games, you're pretty much there unless you're just some sort of outlier anomaly that played horrible for a hundred games, or you played spectacular for a hundred games. Most people aren't like that, but statistically speaking, 200 is the number. If you're just a league player that plays league, you know, Wednesday nights with your buddies, and maybe at most you're playing five games in one night, it takes a long time to get to 200. Mm -hmm. You may not get to 200 in a year. So, A, uh, we can't create a system in which someone can loyally play league for a solid year and not be able to play in our events. It's a great that, point. That would, that would be somewhat ridiculous. The other thing, and most importantly, any healthy organization is always going to bring in new people. It's a hard sell to bring in new people, but tell them they can't play in our events. Right. Right. So we always, all of us, all of our competitors, all the league organizations out there in the world, they constantly want to bring in new people, by the way, including juniors. So you can't set up the system where you say, well, you got to have 200 games to, to be able to play in our events. It's not a good way to do things. So what we do instead is we assign starter ratings. And we're contrary to what some people believe, we're very conservative when we do that. We constantly analyze data on how we're doing when we assign starter ratings. After every event, we analyze you know, what's the percentage of people that were unestablished? How did they do in the event? Did they cash at a higher rate than they should have? Um, so we're constantly looking at these things to determine, do we need to be doing a better job at starter ratings? Are we doing a good job? Sometimes what we find is on average, we're rating people, you know, I would say 10 to 30 points too high on average. And that's okay. That's actually incentive to get more games into the system and get an established rating. But the idea that you should prevent people without 200 games from playing is a losing, failing proposition. And it's not what a healthy organization should do, in my opinion. Yeah, I really appreciate that. And I think that context is going to be helpful to a lot of the folks out there that might be a critic uh, and might kind of try to figure out what your motivations are, right? You're telling them. And I think the point that you made about, hey, I have a league player, you know, they pay their dues, you know, they pay to be a part of, you know, CSI, they play every week. And, you know, over the course of a whole year, they don't get their 200 games, you know? And so that's a really good point. Let me ask you um, about this uh, US APL. Um, you guys, you guys, uh, I'm not too familiar about that with that league. So tell me what that's about and how it kind of differs from like your traditional BCA. Um, just lay that out for me. Yeah, it's a good question. 
Uh, lo lots of people ask, why do you have two leagues? It doesn't make any sense. Well, it's very simple. The, the BCA Pool League is a sanctioning body. Uh, you know, we're trying to get away from that word sanctioning because it has a double meaning. One of those is negative to sanction someone as a penalty, but, yeah. but it's a sanctioning body. It's basically, it's a membership body. So any league in the world, anywhere, any format, any scoring system, any rating system, even though we're huge proponents of Fargo rate, you can be part of another league organization you know, I'll plug our competitors. You can be part of VNEA. You could be part of, you could even be part of APA. Any league, even if it's a member of our competitors. Again, we don't, we don't dictate the way that league is run whatsoever. That's the league operators. Uh, you know, they have autonomy to do what they want with their leagues, but they can choose to join the BCA pool league and enjoy the benefits of membership. And we provide lots of things for our leagues, including Fargo Rate, free online league management system developed by Fargo Rate, and lots of other things. The USA Pool League is very different. It's a licensing system. We have a proprietary USA Pool League scoring system. Uh, everyone plays the same format. Uh, it's really a league geared toward more social um, you know, average skilled players, for lack of a better term. It's not really geared for those, you know, upper level competitive people that just want to, you know, make a living playing pool like a Joey Ryan. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's, it's sort of the more fun league and the unintimidating league. Um, but everybody plays the same format, same scoring system, same league management system. And, uh, and, it's a license to operate that system in the league manager's territory. So they're very, very different in that way. And you also still have the national events for them though, or I guess international events at your, your tournament, right? Yeah. So, you know, this thing has evolved over time. Years ago, it started off the, 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 the thing I'm talking about is the big event in Las Vegas was, simply the BCA Pool League National Championships. Then we realized that it didn't make any sense because we had teams and players from all over the globe. So then it became the BCA Pool League World Championships. But then we had the USA Pool League National Championships being played alongside that event. Well, to say this is the BCA Pool League World Championships and the USA Pool League National Championships, that's a mouthful. Then we add the pro events in partnership with Predator and we bring in the World Predator or the Predator World 10 Ball Championship and the Diamond Las Vegas Open. Now we've got four really high profile, well attended events all under one roof. Last year we sort of rebranded some things and the event is now called the Q Sports International Expo. Oh. And all of these events are under that umbrella. So the Q Sports International Expo contains the BCA Pool League World Championships, USA Pool League National Championships, Predator World 10 Ball, Diamond Las Vegas Open, um, and we've got plans to add even more things to that event because believe it or not, we do still have more space at the Rio. And now uh, we wanna grow the exhibitor side of that too. Uh, the vision is for the Q Sports International Expo to just be this 
you know, circus-like extravaganza for pool that you simply cannot miss. If you're a pool fan or a pool player, you just can't miss it. It's a must-go-to event. That sounds really exciting. And uh, who knows, maybe I'll try to get a booth from you guys and do live podcasts from the event. That'd be pretty cool. Absolutely. <laughs> yeah, we can work something out, Joey. Yeah, that'd be awesome. So Oz, you've been very generous with your time and uh, I want to wind down now, but I want to ask you about places maybe in this country where um, maybe BCA hasn't taken off yet. Cause you know, there there's, there's places where I go and it seems like one of your competitors is the league of choice. And, you know, what would you say to folks in those areas about like what they get with BCA and, and why they should uh, start a BCA league? So I, I would say this, um, you don't have to, it's not an either or decision. So, uh, you know, let, let's say that you're in an area and there just happens to be uh, a big VNEA presence, right? In your home, look, people are going to play where it's convenient. They're not going to drive all the way across town uh, to do something else. So the BCA Pool League, again, is a membership organization. Any league can join. So even if you are a VNEA league and you feel like you're sort of forced into that, Encourage your teammates, encourage your league operator to also join, sanction that league with the BCA Pool League and get the benefits. The BCA Pool League welcomes everybody. No one is turned away because they're a member of some other organization. Anyone can join. As far as why they should do that, well, I mean, we talked about a few things. Fargo rate. Ratings is a huge problem everywhere. You know, it, you can scroll on Facebook if you're a pool fan and you see it never fails. The day after any tournament finishes, you're just going to see tons of complaints about it. Uh, this guy wasn't rated properly. Oh, my God, how can you let let uh, this person into this division? It just it never fails. You really don't see that much with Fargo rate. You might see some other complaints. You know, uh, there, there's this. uh there's this belief out there amongst some that if you simply don't have 200 games, you're underrated. <laughs> but it's just statistically it's not true. I mean, we look at things like that and it's not true, but people like to say that. But Fargo rate, a free online league management system, the only league management system in the world with Fargo rate built in. And by the way, that doesn't just mean your data goes into Fargo rate. That means you can also handicap your league play using Fargo rate if you wish to. Every single league that has done that. And it's not, it's not an easy sell, Joey. I, you know, you talk to, I'll give you an example. There's a BCA pool league in Virginia Beach. The owner of that league purchased the action pool tour for me. I'm, I'm good friends with this guy and he's a great guy. Mm -hmm. Convincing him to stop doing what he's been doing for 20 years was really hard. He was at the Rio. I literally sat down on a stool across from him and talked to him for three hours. <laughs> and he finally said he would do it probably because he didn't want to get badgered anymore, but he did it to his credit. He went home, he did it. He took the hard step. He threw away his old system. He went with Fargo rate. And he called me probably two months later and he said, this is the most amazing thing 
that has ever happened in my league. He had teams, groups of players that really didn't care about winning. They just like to have fun and play organized competition. But they would finish at the bottom of his league every single session. In the old handicap system, the better teams would outrun it every time. And the first session he switched to Fogger 8, that team that always finished at the bottom finished like third or fourth. They were blown away. They had more fun than ever. They start telling their friends who are also pretty average players. All of a sudden, his league is growing like wildfire. It really works. And you get it for free as a BCA pool league member. You just can't beat it. And, you know, lots of other league organizations, they don't have software. You're just paying a fee to, you know, for the right to play in their event. They may recommend some software that you have to pay some additional money for, but you get it absolutely free with the BCA pool league. Yeah, the uh, the operator we have here in Phoenix, uh, Todd Rowitz, is uh, he's doing a fantastic job. I mean, you know, we're dealing with the pandemic now, but he has iPads that go out to every team, and we're just like, bloop, I won, bloop, I lost, you know, and you just click down the iPad, and it calculates everything and takes care of everything, and it's it's really been a uh, a game changer for the leagues down here. So uh, yeah, thanks for that. <laughs> so. Um, let me, so as a final kind of thought, like, is there anything that you want to share? Uh, you know, just anything at all, any closing thoughts with the folks out there that are listening? Well, I, you know, I would just, uh, you allowed me to just share one of the things was there, there is so many uh, misconceptions about what CSI is and what the BCA pool league is. Um, so if you'll allow me to just talk for a minute on that, Sometimes people refer to us as the BCA. We're not the BCA. The BCA is the Billiard Congress of America. The Billiard Congress of America started the BCA Pool League back in the late 70s. However, in 2004, I believe it was divested and sold to Q Sports International. So Q Sports International owns and operates the BCA Pool League and the USA Pool League. CSI is comprised of three divisions. CSI leagues, CSI events, and CSI media. The leagues division owns and operates the BCA Pool League and the USA Pool League. The events division sets up and runs all of the various events that we do, amateur and pro, all over the country and you know, soon the world. And media is our live streaming capability and our YouTube presence. So that's what we are. We're not the BCA. People still refer, refer to it as that. We're Q Sports International. And the BCA Pool League is just one of those products that we have in our portfolio. We deeply care about the sport. It's not about making a quick buck for us. Uh, we invest very, very heavily in things that we think will benefit the sport because we believe when you grow the sport, sure, it may benefit our competitors. That's okay. We're going to grow the pie. We're going to grow the sport. And it's not all about the pro game. It's not all about the amateur game. It's about the entire sport. And that's everything from a kid picking up a cue when he's eight years old and his dad holding the milk crate up to the table, all the way through someone winning the Predator World 10 Ball Championship. It's all part of the ecosystem. 
We care very, very deeply about that. And everything we do is with the goal of growing that entire ecosystem. Well, Ozzy, I I really appreciate your time. And, you know, that was a great explanation for me, you know, because you hear these acronyms, BCA, CSI. And and so now I, I clearly understand what you guys are doing. And I appreciate what you're doing for the game. And so if there's ever anything that I can do to help, please let me know. And, uh, you know, we're going to be pulling for you uh, once all the regulations are lifted, you know, to make a full recovery, uh, just like so many other people out there, you know, from what we've experienced in 2020 and uh, really have an amazing 2021. So I wish you the best and I look forward to following your events and attending your events and uh, still playing in the pool league. So. Well, thanks, Joey. March 3rd, March 3rd through 13th the 2021 Q Sports International Expo. Awesome. It is on. Don't miss it.